welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport. Our guest today is Paul Darling OBE QC. Paul is a leading barrister in commercial and construction disputes and regulatory issues in the sports and gambling world. He was awarded the Officer of the British Empire in recognition of his services to sports safety and horse racing. In this podcast, Paul gives his perspective on the evolution of the betting industry and the changing attitudes towards betting and in particular sports betting in the UK. It was an absolute pleasure to speak to Paul and get his views on the business practices in the gambling sector, the state of research and understanding of gambling addiction, the use of technology and its impact on responsible gambling, as well as what he would like to see happen in the current dialogue and review that is ongoing around the UK's Gambling Act 2005. For background, Paul is well placed to give a perspective on this. Having been a chairman of the Association of British Bookmakers, the trade association which represents most betting shops in the UK, which has since been replaced by the Betting and Gaming Council, the BGC. Now, if you're interested in sports betting, If you're interested in the relationship between sport and the betting industry, not only in the UK, but globally, I think you're going to find this a helpful podcast and hopefully you find it interesting. Of course, if you've got any comments, feedback, please let me know. I'd love to hear them. I'm sure Paul would as well. Something we don't cover in this podcast is that Paul was also the chairman of the Sports Ground Safety Authority, the body set up to prevent a repetition of the Hillsborough disaster. But it was something that we'll cover in the next few weeks. So I'm looking forward to that very much. Other than that, whatever time of day it is, wherever you are in the world, thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the show. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to meet. Pleasure. Uh, We met, we're currently in your offices uh, 39 Essex Chambers, overlooking actually a slightly different view. I think is that Lincoln's Inn. Lincoln's Inn. Lincoln's Inn. Lincoln's Inn. Best view in the town. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Um, we had a discussion at an event your chambers was running on uh, data protection and privacy. Yep. And the conversation went along the lines of, oh, "I'm really interested at the moment what's happening in the betting market in relation to data, in relation to the passing of data," and then we ended up in a in a much more wide-ranging discussion around the betting market and all the developments of the the regulations around betting companies and it, as it turned out and sometimes these things happen when you're in a <laughs> in a chambers actually turns out that you're uh, well versed and incredibly experienced in this in this sector having been chair of the association of british bookmakers firstly do you want to describe what that association was and what your role was yes i i was lucky enough to be involved um in a couple of gambling and horse racing um organizations first of all i was on the board of the tote which uh, had a small online business but mainly had betting shops and was responsible for the pool on uh, on british horse racing um courses I then became, so, so for those who've got a lot of international listeners, the yeah. pool being pool, pool is pool is the is the betting, which is principally done on course, which is done by pool, i.e. that the takeout is determined by the amount bet by individuals rather than the fixed odds 
um, system whereby people get a pre-agreed price. So the, all the money goes into the pool, and depending upon how many people have bet on each horse or combination, that determines their return. And it was owned by, British, by the British government. It privatised it. Um, odd to think of the British government owning a gambling business. may come back to that a bit later. I was then um, government-appointed member of the Horse Race Betting Levy Board, um, which was responsible for distributing and collecting and distributing the levy on bets on British horse racing. When that came to an end, I was invited to the job you've just mentioned, which is to take the chairmanship of the Association of British Bookmakers. That was then the trade association which represented betting shops, not online, not bingo, but betting shops, um, of which there were in those days about 9,000, um, and I was asked to be the non-executive, uh, quasi-independent chairman of that. I say quasi-independent because I was there to bring an external perspective, but of course my role as chairman of the Trade Association was to represent the industry. And I did that for five years. The organisation was has recently been, to my great delight, replaced by the Betting and Gaming Council, which now covers... Um, shops, online and casinos, um, but my role was, and where I'm a specialist, is in shops. And for those that aren't familiar with this, can you describe what was going on in the UK in the in the political environment around uh, betting shops? Because... Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think, I think that, that you start from the Gambling Act 2005, which had a number of um, implications. The first was that betting shops, which were um, got the benefit in, in those days of being allowed to have four what were called fixed odds betting terminals. Uh, and that um, was a dramatic change um, in that it, they were gaming machines inside a betting shop. So um, a, a very different approach. Uh, in parallel with that, you had the relaxation on television advertising, which meant that you were, meant that gambling companies were able to gamble to advertise on television to a much greater extent. So you had this raising of um, public perception of gambling uh, as a consequence of the liberalisation in the 2005 Act. Um, basically, there has now been, and we can talk about its detail and its justification and its effect. Um, and I, it's a complex position. Basically, the, the world has now um, taken the view that gambling, which was um, not at the top of the social concerns list, is now absolutely thought to be um, a, a serious problem. I remember vividly a senior officer of the TOTE, the chairman after I left the board, saying, the thing about gambling is that people come into our shops... And in those days, it was shops because it wasn't online. They give us a pound, we give them 87p back, and they go out happy. Um, and <laughs> and um, that, of course, is going to be, was never ultimately, if you think about it in that world, going to be sustainable, unless what you were getting for your 13p was something that was really valuable. Now, in parallel with that, I think that, the, the problems and harms caused by gambling have begun to be better understood. Uh, and secondly, they have also, um, th those, th that proper understanding has then tapped into um, 
social media, politics, etc. And therefore, that the as a matter of fact, whether it is evidence-based or not, and we perhaps talk about that later, um, gambling has very much gone from being uh, um, not particularly prominent to more prominent, and then political and social concerns about its impact um, being... Uh, Identified. I have some sort of anecdotes, and so I know they can be helpful sometimes, but they can equally be unhelpful because you always think of the extremes. But I remember working in law firms, uh, the late nineties, early two thousands, and there was a few people who loved, particularly on horse racing, loved to go to the bookies yeah. uh, over near Cannon Street at lunchtime, yeah. and they would do it, and you know, it, it it wasn't a concern for them. But then the online gambling came, and all of a sudden, every single lunchtime, uh, there was about three or four individuals in a big firm. Um, who would be on every lunchtime, every coffee break, be checking what was going on. And the, because their ability to access the opportunity had just massively increased. They didn't need to leave the office. They didn't need to go anywhere. They could just, um, you know, bet online. And, that, and that, that initially seemed to me to be uh, slightly concerning back well, then. To, to a, num- a number of points. Yes, is the short answer to what you're saying. <laughs> um, first point is that it is certainly right but technology, the internet, smartphones, computers, have made access to gambling products generally much easier. Um, and there was, a, in my view, great benefit in being required to step out of the office and go into the shop. A, because it was a positive act you had to do, and B, because when you got into the shop, there were other people there. You weren't simply sitting there with your smartphone in your own office getting um, uh, gambling away. So uh, f- first point to make is that media, social, um, the internet and technology has made a big difference. Secondly, I also think that understanding and regulation takes a long time to catch up. When I became chairman of the ABB, um, I remember briefing myself on problem gambling, and we set up something called the Senate Group, which was a, uh, within the industry, which was a body to promote responsible gambling, um, and um, to provide an element of self-regulation uh, and various advertising campaigns to support re- responsible gambling. What struck me when I arrived was how little the problems and issues were really understood. For example, I mean, I, I, one of the things I'm most proud of is having set up, set, of the things I've ever done is setting up Senate, um, because it was a real, it, in my view, it was a real force for good. Um, we we set up um, um, the campaign, the bad bet, we bad Betty advertising campaign, which was be, um, based on uh, a um, musical uh, description of showing people having problems and how that they should then you know, take a break. Uh, and the slogan that we adopted was "When the fun stops, stop." Yeah. Now, um, what now? That now looks to be frank, quite a naive campaign because the criticism that that is encouraging gambling but just trying to filter out of it the, the irresponsible or the, the harmful gambling seems to me to be a fair one because um, at that stage, knowledge was... Um, knowledge and understanding of problem gambling seemed to me to be at a much more rudimentary stage than it now is and I think the problems are much better understood well there wasn't the research in it in the, in the you know but no doubt there the wasn't the the attention that was, was no I mean I think now no I mean I think I there are various bodies funded funded by the industry directly and indirectly some 
independent, some less independent. Um, for example, Senate had an independent Senate had a um, independent chairman and a majority of independent directors, um, and a lot of money has been now devoted to research. The trouble is that even though I'm a strong supporter of the industry funding that and being involved in its commissioning, because in my view, that is the way that you get the best quality of information, um, its efficacy and its use of such research is often damaged by the fact that the um, strong, some campaigners say, unless it is completely divorced of any industry contact, it is contaminated. Now, I don't agree with that, but because they say it, there is that com contamination impact in any event. But it's certainly right that research has, has grown up and up and up. One of the problems, however, which I think has to be faced, is that as time goes, at, during the recent anti-gambling campaigns, um, the evidence-based approach to policymaking, in my view, has been, if I put it delicately, diminished. Um, some might say thrown out the window, but I certainly diminished. And that, of course, does undermine the potential benefits of research. Because if you're going to do research about problem gambling and then not look at the evidence from it when you then make your policies, then what is the point? For myself, I think that it is absolutely critical that the amount of money that is devoted... Um, to research, education, and treatment is as is is uh, to be blunt as much as possible because it is ultimately in the uh, everyone's interest for research, education, and treatment to be as well done as it is absolutely possible for it to be done. I would agree with that on the research, and I also think I, I'm very sympathetic though to given the long history of lobbying through research, both in the legal profession in the US and elsewhere, and I see it in sports law, you know, people not really disclosing who's funding uh, various publications and uh, research papers. Uh, it can cause some, some, some concern and confusion and can be misleading. However, I think the, the wider point is someone needs to pay for it and the more money you can get into it generally and if you can put those uh, mechanisms in place, it can be better. The, one, the th point I really wanted to touch on was I remember there was an MP, I think it was David Lammy, is that right? David Lammy is certainly an MP. Yeah, yeah a well known, a well known <laughs> and highly respected. <laughs> but he he was um, campaigning in Tottenham yep. around the number of shops yep. that were located in yep. a lower socioeconomic environment, yep. right? And I remember being quite sympathetic to that view and thinking, hmm, that doesn't that makes a lot of sense. At that time, though, I didn't see and didn't have any idea of what was going to happen in the online space at that time. And it, now looking back on it, I reflect on it and think, was was that almost a bit of a red herring in the sense of we were looking at the betting shops as being the, the big problem because there was criticisms about how they were dealing with problem gamblers, etc. And on that watch the online scene was not being regulated and what the business practices were doing and how they're doing targeting, etc. Yeah, I mean, a number of points to make there. First, um, I do not think that the industry, the betting shop industry, did itself any favours with this proliferation of betting shops on certain high streets. Um, Tottenham High Street, Wood Green High Street, you know, I, I, I do think that that was a big own goal. 
because it created an impression of betting shops taking over the high street. Secondly, it's also right that the reason for that was that um, because fixed odds betting terminals were limited to four per shop, um, that it was in the operator's interests to have as many shops as they reasonably could, or as, as were economic, because the, the, the machine limit uh, w was, a ser was a serious impact. Um, and, um, but the, 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 what no one remembers is that actually what those shops were doing was fulfilling a demand, and that there were people in those areas who wanted to use the betting terminals that then had a maximum stake of 50 or 100 pounds, depending upon which operating system you used. Um, and there was that demand for gambling. And the effect of restricting the availability of that, one of the effects of restricting that availability, uh, is, would be to push um, um, those people online and into other forms of gambling. And um, I do agree that... Um, uh, online involves different issues to shops. And it's also right that during the fixed odds betting terminal debate, the effect of that was to um, take the scrutiny or keep the scrutiny away from online. And, and if, you, if you think about the fixed odds betting terminal stake debate somebody would be not able in a shop to bet more than two pounds after the recent stake, stake cut came, but on their smartphone that they can be holding in their hand whilst they were um, standing in the shop, the same limit would not apply and they would be able to, to do... Now, that sort of targeting one product was, in my view, wrong, but of course it was a reaction, it's a manifestation of society's concern about these things. Mm. And so what's really interesting, listen to this, I hadn't really given this as much thought as I should have before the podcast, probably. Um, but I was, I was looking at some of your comments, as, yeah. as I mentioned uh, before we started, yeah. um, in various uh, press publications. The, the, the betting shop issue was not, seems to me, the discussion was not so closely aligned to sport. Whereas currently the online uh, proliferation of gambling, the sponsorship in football and other sports, the the online TV is 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 seems to be anyway. At least the the, the narrative around it is uh, very very closely aligned to sport, and hence it's damaging yeah. the, the the reputation. Sport, of sport, and things happening in the home, because one of the things about betting shops, even though that they have shop fronts, they betting shops have a pretty good, not perfect, but and perfection is what you've got to try and achieve, record for keeping under-18s out of the shops. So the reality is that uh, once you're inside a betting shop, it's not going to be children, um, and that is obviously critical. And I, I do think that one of the issues about sport and betting company sponsorship is the impact on children. Yeah. And I think that is uh, one of the downsides of the FOB-T damaging debate was that it did mean that that debate was the debate about advertising. That's fixed about betting terminals. Yeah, the, the debate about fixed betting terminals um, kept the attention away from advertising, uh, sponsorship, and other, on one view, um, in, some, in some parts of the world, some parts of the work, more damaging parts of online.
I must admit, it's something I'm very concerned about. Again, we talked about about esports. Yeah. For this reason, yeah. there was a conference that received quite a bit of criticism. Actually, it was had a betting company sponsoring their esports component of it, and it would seem either naive or uh, misleading at worst uh, to think that you weren't attracting uh, young people and particularly minors to an activity if it, such as esports, where the the, the whole uh, gaming industry as in computer games uh and the esports publications are targeting those young people they want them to come through they want them to be uh fans of that and you've got companies like riot who prohibit gambling on the game but they've got betting markets they've never had to acknowledge they've got betting markets outside of what they're doing that they have to then work with bookmakers to make sure they're, they're monitoring everything that's going on i have myself never understood how it was thought that there is going to be a borderline between uh, e-games and gambling and betting. Um, I've, I'm sure it's my own intellectual inadequacy, but I, I seem to me that they are from the same families, um, except that they're differently regulated and with different impacts and all the rest of it. But they, when you drill down to what's the essence of them, there's a massive overlap. Yeah, yeah, and it's slightly, it's something that is slightly concerning. I think that that when we've got this new review of the Gambling Act, that I hope that it's something that's taken in, into consideration because one of the things maybe you can either expose, I guess, or give us, I should say, give us a greater understanding uh, of the commercial practices in the betting industry. So I think I think you referred to the tote, for example, with the, the comment of "You give us one pound, we'll give you eighty-seven p back." Yeah. Uh, it seemed to me that when I look at a lot of the coverage around the regulation of the the gambling industry as a whole, whether it is on uh, you know sports gambling, the fixed terminals, whether it's uh, online gambling, the understanding of how the commercial practices actually work and who's incentivized to do what. Yeah, I I, I think he's misunderstood. Put, you know, I think you've put your finger onto a really really big and difficult area, and obviously whilst I was um, involved in the betting world before I was chairman of the ABB, then as chairman of the ABB and now since then, obviously one gets an insight and a perspective. And I would say the following things. One, with limited, very limited exceptions, I, I personally believe that those whom I have come across at the top of the organisations that include amongst their portfolios betting shops do genuinely have responsible gambling, harm prevention, I use those as labels rather than descriptions, at the top of their agendas and genuinely believe in it. And I, I'm absolutely clear about that. Secondly, um, I also believe that intellectually those same people also take the view that that, whilst it's the right thing to do as a matter of principle, is also good business. Um, because if you are not going to be a uh, if you are doing the right thing, your chances of avoiding regulatory sanction, improving your business, grow. Thirdly, however, um, if one looks at the uh, number of the instances of where things have gone wrong, some involving organisations that were members of the ABB when I was its chairman, many involving others who were didn't have shops or were not members of the ABB, you do see some failings that you that I that, that if you're involved in the gambling industry in the sort of role I was were really quite distressing um, I'm not going to um, 
identify individuals because one can go on the Gambling Commission website. But and um, for, for, for the, the overwhelming majority, you will find were not in shops. Um, uh, that was why when there was the odd regulatory failure in shops, um, I used to find it personally very upsetting because um, it, it was so contrary to the ethos that we had. For, but the reason for that is because these are organisations which are commercial, and one has to accept that, and you are person-dependent. So therefore, you know, one person who decides to take a gambler um, a sandwich so he doesn't have to leave the machine, um, as happened in one famous case, that's only one person that you need. So I, 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 I think the industry is in a... Um, has that inherent conflict... Um, the fact that the external scrutiny, um, I'm a big fan of, fan of the Gambling Commission, I think they do a um, difficult job well, um, but when campaigners are targeting the industry and they target one particular product or one particular part of a sector, then that is on the one hand unfair, but also takes the heat off the other parts um, where, where um, attention may produce better benefits well isn't one of the i always have to qualify the fact that i'm actually pro-gambling because sometimes it can appear particularly for some of the things i put on social media uh, that i'm anti-gambling i'm not i think believe i believe people should be able to gamble i think it's much better to allow them to gamble and uh, create a good regulatory structure and framework in place in which they can do that you know i know it's very cliche thing yeah. to say no, now no. but responsibly it seems to me, though, but, 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 but yeah, <laughs> but it seems to me that one of the challenges is that you can't have in the sector, as I've seen anyway, it's very difficult to have a, uh, a full and frank discussion without people getting, uh, like I guess it's replicated in most areas of life now, very polarized. And so, say, for example, you were saying that, and I don't disagree with you, people in gambling organizations individually want to prevent problem gambling they want to have business models which are well the majority want to have business models which are sustainable which are valued that, that avoid as you were saying regulatory sanctions however if you look at if i've got this right so say the online gambling and i've heard from some people talk about this they were essentially described to me this scenario we do a campaign whether it's on social media or whether it's um through a football club website whatever it is we identify who they would say is someone who's more inclined to bet and at a moment of heightened emotional intensity we will make sure they get targeted ads right so you know within a football game for me, that seems deeply troubling, but I can understand from a commercial perspective why that seems makes perfect sense. Right? We want to get to our consumer at the point where they're most likely to buy. Right? We want to create that emotional connectivity. But the Gambling Commission don't really look at this, as far as I'm aware. And the ASA say that, when I spoke to them, they said, well, we deal with it once they advertise, and that's the problem. Is, is what they're advertising um, accurate? Is it done responsibly within the, the guidelines that we provide? It seems to me that there's a gap. Yeah. Uh, I, f first point is obviously my specialist area is shops and the fact that, 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 that the levels of supervision and targeting, to use your words, in shops is completely different is one of the reasons why I feel so, I've always felt so comfortable about shops. Um, secondly, 
you are right that there is an inherent tension between, on the one hand, people persuading people to, to, to gamble um, and the need to avoid them to, and to, to spend money on the betting company's product, and on the other hand, to protect them. And um, take the analogy, nowadays, um, you can't practically use cigarettes because that is now much better understood thank goodness but take alcohol um you know if you are um and, and to my mind there are strong parallels between alcohol advertising and gambling advertising you know when you are if you're encouraging someone at a moment of high intensity to have another vodka then it does rather depend upon how many vodkas they're going to have and how many vodkas they've already had now i i the illustration that you've given of targeting people at moments of highest intensity when you know that they're going to be most susceptible makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, and um, I, that's one of the reasons why I think that regulation um, by objective standard and well-enforced is important because if what you are doing is um, encouraging somebody to bet um, on Newcastle scoring two goals in the 93rd and 94th minute, as they have done once this season, um, and uh, you target me and I have two pounds um, on, on the double and I the odds are 10 to 1, I make 20 quid, or I'd lose two if it didn't happen, um, perhaps it's more than 10 to 1, but that is one thing because that's a small amount, pro rata to affordability, etc., etc. But if you've got a um, someone with a, a gambling problem being targeted in that way and the amount of money is material to their affordability and their overall financial position, I feel very uncomfortable about it. But I also think that, um, because I've been involved more with shops than online, I also think that most people that I know, not all people that I know in the betting industry would also, when it's expressed the, the way that you just have, would also be uncomfortable about it. Well, isn't the problem though that the, the and this is where the conversation gets a bit, um, can, people can get distracted or target fixated. The amount's less of an issue for me. It's the behaviour that's the problem. So one at scale. So if you have someone, uh, for example, who uh, steals a penny, as yeah. we've seen, right? They steal a penny from someone. No one really. That is an eyelid, oh, it's a penny, who cares? But when they do it to 5 million people, 6 million people, as they have done, it becomes a problem. And so the, uh, so, so it's the, it's the, the, with the advent of technology, the ability to do it on scale is, is a thing that I'm concerned about. And then, and then, and then also then, you know, what is, so uh, the, this, I think you described it well, this tension between how do you have a business which is there to make profit and you want to have repeat customers, yeah. right? And so your target is how can we make stuff? And this is not um, necessarily just driven by the betting industry at all. This is driven by technology, smartphones. You know, Apple have had to put stuff on about screen time. You know, the addictive tendencies there because they've worked out online shopping. Online shopping. They've worked out how to, you know, well they will say it's not responsible design. It's designed to purposely be addictive, right? And so within that, you could see if I was working in a big company and you've got your team there and guys, we need to increase our uh, revenue this month. How can we make sure that those people who came last month 
come back again this month that you can see there's some people who are going to take a more uh say conservative approach and take well-being and and you know and take a long-term view but if people are being remunerated on an annual basis or quarterly basis you can see those just in terms of these companies you can see internally they're being pressures for people to that's why you've got to have a very clear line as to what they can and can't yeah. do and also keep the line under under regular review because technology moves so fast understanding moves so fast for example um if you um let's take amazon um won't personalise it to them, but a, a, a because it, it is not, not, not in any sense uh, a company specific problem. It's an industry specific you problem. Amazon, Google, Alphabet, Google, yeah, yeah. but but, but all, all, all of the people where you're buying stuff online, um, they've now so streamlined it that you choose it, click it, and it's being delivered. You know, the, the, there's there's no there's no moment for reflection, um, and indeed and indeed they they promise to deliver it within three hours or whatever it is, so as to so as to you know further remove the sensory block on 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 doing, and therefore, and I, I but I do think that actually you're right. This is not a problem that is specific to gambling, um, and it is right that online shopping can cause people harm. Of course it is. But it is right that when you are dealing with gambling products, um, those have a capacity to cause harm, and that therefore these sorts of technological developments are going to have a bigger impact um, on people in those sorts of areas. Um, and you're right about the power of big business being able, by scaling up, to take a penny from half a penny from half the world. I mean, on, on my mobile phone, my um, Apple subscriptions, each of them look each of them look small individually, but when they then appear every month. Um, um, but but I, but, I, but I think that is one of the reasons why I personally was so disappointed um, about the attack on retail betting shops. Because these issues, I'm not suggesting retail betting shops are perfect places. Um, there are now 2,000 less of them than there were 18 months ago, um, that sort of number. Um, but to my mind, they, the issues that they had were, were very different, in my view less serious, than the sorts of issues we're now talking about. And they were also known and known well, largely known and largely predicted. Um, one of the problems is that when you're making decisions about how to regulate things, you are inevitably doing from an imperfect knowledge base. It may be a improving knowledge base, but for example, you know, I was much involved in um, player protection devices on on gaming machines, all of which had to try and make assumptions about how people were behaving, why they were behaving, and how they would be impacted by, for example, requirements to take a break, or messages saying you've now lost X, or you've now been on this machine for Y minutes. The reality is that, that even though our knowledge of all behaviour is improving, across whether it's in a shop or on the internet it's still pretty imperfect and, and then so also to create some balance in this because i feel like i've been on a bit of a t an attack um but offset with this is that that well, i know this is the complaint that you articulated earlier and it's a, a legitimate complaint is you've got licensed bookmakers uh in the uk then you have the offshores who are who um are not under the same well because of point of consumption um now the UK Gambling Commission will be regulating gambling happening in the UK. Yes. 
as best they can as, be, as best they can because <laughs> there's vp this is the problem right it's not a perfect system and, and and i recognize that it's a challenging job that they've got and i don't envy them at all um the the you mentioned off the record though it's a very competitive marketplace now as well so it's yeah. not it's not the case that there's just three or four major bookmakers there's a, a plethora of people and so what are the challenges for some of these organizations because I would imagine, again, if I just take out the gambling component and say, right, business owners, they're in an environment, it's, it's super competitive, the margins aren't particularly uh, great, they need to scale, don't they? Is that, is that yeah. What, yeah, they need yeah I, I mean, I think, I think that the, the first thing to say is that um, it is definitely right that the gambling and betting market is a lonely place for small operators. Um, I, I don't have the up-to-date figures for shop closures, but certainly one of the areas where betting shops have been decimated is the independent sector. Um, we've seen closures from some of the larger operators, but during my time at the ABB, you know, rarely a day went by without some independent operator writing to us to tell us that he was handing he or she was handing their licensing. Um, secondly, online, um, and I don't know um, what the detailed numbers are. Um, but the number of operators who, for example, in British horse racing, um, achieve enough of a um, uh, gross win to be required to pay the betting levy is quite small. Um, and, and in reality, when one is looking at the receipts from the levy on British racing, one's looking at a handful of operators. So to, to, to my mind, um, um, and they're the, the household names that, that, you and I, that you and I would know, to my mind, anyone coming into the um, the market new, uh, as it were, starting from scratch, has has inevitably a problem. But of course, you do see some of them managing to achieve it. Um, I'm I'm not an expert or not especially experienced to say how well or how ethically they are they are doing it, um, because once one goes past the small number of large operators, you do then have a a plethora. Um, of a plethora of organisations, some of which get a better press than others. And what would your take be on talking about the levy? In the US, this is a very topical issue, the so-called integrity fee or um, some sort of payment from bookmakers to the leagues in particular uh, to be able to monitor run integrity programmes uh, and that's such a such thing. What do you? What's your view on that then? Given because well, I'd never, I'd never really okay. heard about that cap yeah. sorry, on the betting levy. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, the, the position is that um, in the UK on horse racing, um, until um, media rights became a source of income for the industry, then the betting industry was very largely funded. Sorry, the racing industry was very largely funded by levy payments from bookmakers, and levy being a means of taking either from turnover or nowadays gross win, a percentage. That's a less important part of racing's business model now because they also have commercial arrangements with operators um, for pictures and other um, uh, media rights. The levy then, what the levy provides, and I was involved in the re reform of the levy, um, and wearing my trade association hat, the minister said to us when she was telling us her decision was that she's going to set 10% as the levy because that was an underpin which would provide um, regulatory, veterinary um, services as an absolute base um, and 
that is a pretty unique arrangement. And when you say to uh, other sports from time to time, come and say, well, why has horse racing got a levy and, and we football, for example, haven't? And um, there are differences, um, and you know some of them hold some of the differences hold water uh, less than uh, better than others. Um, but if you are having an industry, uh, and I'm talking about the UK and 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 abroad, which is because they're taken at the lowest level, their product is being bet upon, and that that is bringing regulatory and integrity issues, which they've then got to spend money um, on on. Um, policing, preventing, um, and dealing with when it occurs, it's difficult to say that the betting industry ought to be able to bet on that product free when its betting is causing that industry to have those sorts of issues. And I think that is really quite a difficult issue. Um, and I think that um, you know the betting companies do, um, um, ESSA in the um, uh, one of the the bodies that the industry supports and finances. And I think that the financial relationship between betting and the industries that it bets upon is, well, to watch this space. I yeah, think absolutely. Well, they've now changed their name, which yeah. is something that I find interesting yeah. to the Betting Integrity Association, yes. which is which I don't necessarily think clearly states where they're getting their funding from or uh, what their objective is. No, I think, I think, I think that, that one of the... One of the problems that you have in this world, I remember when we set up Senate, um, which was a, a body to promote and regulate responsible gambling. And we, I was its acting chairman because I was asked to set it up and appoint the independent chairman as part of a big process. And it was very funny because a very nice man um, called Ron Finley became our, our uh chief executive and set it up with us and the first time he came to see me I remember it was yesterday he came he'd done his homework and he came in with this A3 document which was a a um, graphical representation of all the regulatory bodies trade associations charitable bodies RET you know and he, they were all on and he's put it down on the table and he said to me so could you just explain to me how the, all of these fit together <laughs> and I I, I really regret that I didn't keep a copy of it. Mind you, of course, it would have been out of date within half an hour because so much so much was changing. But it is right that who does what in the in these various bodies is um, sometimes carefully concealed um, by the title of the body. But again, I think one has to look at that realistically because what the what what happens is um, the industry thinks to itself pursuant to the good intentions I was talking about, oh, we ought to be doing something about integrity. And then, so, a budget is found for, for, for each company for, for integrity. And um, each company for integrity. And something is then set up. Somebody starts to answer, well, our name doesn't quite reflect, so we'll change the name. But then the remit gets changed slightly. And it... it it is part and parcel of chaos isn't the right word, but it is it is certainly a fluid and complex industry. And you've then got the commercial pressures on top. I was very lucky when I was chairman of the ABB because I had very good support, nearly without exception, from the um, senior people in each of the member organisations, and they provided the money that was needed. Um, and they were I have with one or two exceptions, no complaints 
um, about the way in which they collectively dealt with it. But, you know, sometimes um, I was asking them for um, large amounts of money. And organisations that are commercially tightly run with short stock market profiles are very, 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 um, can, can face those pressures. They did very well, in my view, not for me to mark their work, but I was terribly impressed by the way in which they did put themselves behind initiatives. Make you laugh, when we set up Senate, um, the chief executive came to see me before the independent chairman was in and said, marvellous news, Paul. Um, we booked all the advertising space on the television channels for the launch of this marvellous campaign. Um, good, I said, marvellous. And he said, less good news. And I said, oh dear, what's the less good news? Um, we've got to pay for it. And I said, well, of course we have to pay for it because, you know, that's how these things work. And he said, we've got to pay for it tomorrow. To which I said, D -d -d -t tomorrow? tomorrow? <laughs> you mean the day after today? And he said, yes. I said, up, 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 what time tomorrow? Um, and he, he mentioned a number um, of, because this, this was a big launch, two or three million pounds wow. of advertising space that had been pre-booked. Uh, and, and I suggested, well, hang on, they know that our member companies are, you know, big advertisers, I'm sure. No. Um, as a consequence of which, I had to get, and in fact, I may exaggerate, it may have been two days, not one. Each of the major betting companies transferred their share within 36 hours. Wow. Now, for big companies, that's a major commitment. Big companies with processors, that's a major commitment. It's a big reflector of the commitment that they have. As against that, it is, you know, it is not a bottomless pit. Yeah. And obviously things have to be justified. Um, I um, think that that's going to be one of the challenges for the industry going forward, particularly if money is um, put mo is devolved more to outside bodies into which um, into which bookmakers have less input. I think that will create a, a tension in the way in which the money is spent. For example, one of my own personal pet projects when I was chairman of the ABB was that I was quite keen to experiment um, with responsible with treatment um, organisations in one-off places, very much as an experiment to see how it would work. And my, my lot were very willing to fund that, um, even though it may have been quite a per large per head figure per person that was able to be helped. Um, they didn't worry about that. I do hope that future funding arrangements give that sort of innovation and flexibility, because that, to my mind, is the is the way that we are going to try and make inroads into into some of these wider social problems. Uh, as you were talking, I was li I was listening, but I was also thinking about the description. People not off when I'm talking. No, no, no. When, when I, was, I, was, I was thinking about the description I read of you as being someone, the go-to person for very complex legal matters. And I was thinking your analysis has been um, great, a great insight for me. So thank you for that. That's like, right. I really do think it's... Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure I've uh, characterised it as, as kindly as you have. But it's, <laughs> very... But it's very useful. And because um, it's, it's trying to get a better understanding of what the actual problems are as you were saying going back to your initial point about the research can well, i make what, one point there you can can huh? i make one point um um i think that there is a real space in this world for people who are interested in the problem sympathetic to the industry 
but also keen to help. On the one hand, if you look, danger that you have at the moment is that you have, on the one hand, you have the industry, and at the other end, you have the campaigners. Um, and I have great respect for nearly all the campaigners, but they see things through very different spectra. And to my mind, one of the things that I hope I was able to bring to the party, and would be happy to continue to do so, is being in that middle space. Um, of course, the campaigners would say, well, um, he is um, always, you know, he's been the industry's mouthpiece. Um, and, and I take that on board. Equally, um, the industry would say, well, you don't, you wouldn't see things now necessarily always through our um, always through uh, our eyes. My own view is the more people that interest themselves and help with the sorts of issues we've been talking about, the better it is for both because finding a, the appropriate balance, both regulatorily and commercially, is, I think, really quite difficult. Yeah, I, I totally agree. One, uh, can you clarify something for me? Do you think this is a legitimate concern? So one of my observations from again particularly dealing with a lot of the integrity issues um but going to various conferences at cms can kind of do a good one each year where they bring together various stakeholders and one of the david zeffman does david Zeffman, yeah, yeah he really does he yeah. does a really it's, it, it, i i think it's become the go-to conference well, well, we're going to be um publishing their videos actually because i asked him i had a Something came up and I couldn't get to this year's, and I I was really sorry about. Yeah, they're on it, the so. web. They're on their website, but we're going to take. Them I didn't as know well, that. Cause, I mean, cause yeah, they're, I'm, they're sure, really... I'm sure David. I mean, David's a serious player. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 great. And um, so, when one of the things that I picked up from going to these various events was the interchangeable language between customer, client, bettor, gambler, punter, um, and I felt that from again looking at it from an outsider's perspective, I felt that. And given we care about the law and the precision and use of language is important in law, that there should be, or it would be sensible if there was a standardised use of language in the sector to make sure that everyone was doing exactly the same thing. Well, it's a very wise and correct observation. Starts with um, the distinction between betting on the one hand and gaming on the other. So, which is a distinction that is that, that is. You know, if somebody's having a bet as against using a gaming product, that those are, well, they have similarities, two different operations. Um, secondly, I also think that, um, the, that the, there is a big distinction between those who are betting physically uh, in a structure, whether it's a, a shop, a race course, whatever it be, on the one hand, and those who are online. Um, um, I also think that, so I think the langu standardised language that was uh, consistent but which made those distinctions um, would be a good thing. I also think that when you are taking it one stage further um, and talking about harm prevention, responsible gambling, um, pre preventing irresponsible gambling, education, that actually um, that debate be made much easier and much more constructive if it used the same standards and terminology because looked at it from the campaigner's point of view the industry publishes material arguments evidence research which they want to scrutinize and vice versa if you then spend the the first 15 minutes or the you know having to work to, to identify it and of course you've then got 
uh, and I don't know enough about this, it doesn't stop me saying something about it, um, the academic world, where obviously um, um, it is important to identify the basis upon which exercises and or research are carried out. Uh, and again, I think that protocols for how that is to be done, protocols about um, independence, funding, etc., the more that there is standardization, the less we are going to have, um, the less that we are going to have um, time wasted that could be spent improving the position. And the best illustration of that, and this is a point from the industry's point of view I accept, is um, the d definition of problem gamblers and at-risk gamblers, or people who are at risk from... Uh, and, and again, I think that's an area where some further research and standardisation of the terms, um, and you know, we've all done the uh, at-risk gambler um, surveys ourselves, um, and... Sometime, and I don't think that there is a common understanding of what that language means. So I, I think starting with description of the customer is, is, is right. But if you're able to use standard understanding, I mean, I... I it's just something I've just observed from Because I, I, I just thought, I thought, because you, you can have someone thinking that they're agreeing... But really, they're talking about two different. And I noticed it in a couple of discussions that I've witnessed. Um, the, other, the, other, the other thing <laughs> is, it gets it gets in the way of the debate, because um, when you look at um, the number of problem gamblers and, and the statistics and the percentages and their statistical relevance and all the rest of it, um, and you have a sort of public debate about that, um, it creates an impression, um, either pro-industry or anti-industry, it doesn't matter, where you're basically talking slogans. Yeah, yeah. And this is not this business is not about slogans. Absolutely. This business is about um, uh, this business is about um, the detail, and it's about the science. I mean, I, I well known for my um, sadness at the fact that. Um, betting shops close. I know some opponents of the industry say that, that one more betting shop closes and another good day. I personally don't agree. I'm not suggesting all shops are the same, um, but I do think that if you are going to be um, having a potentially damaging effect on livelihoods, um, communities, etc., that you need to be doing so on a fully informed conscious basis and common terminology common concepts in an informed evidence-based debate is absolutely critical literally that took we've got to cover that for much longer than i thought we were going to do in a way that i really am pleased that we have um I, i've gone a, on too long i no, always no do. no it's 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 the type of discussion that, that that i wanted to have on this particular issue because i felt following our discussion at yeah. the event that there was a, there's a gap currently and i felt that this would hopefully fill that gap so i hope people have enjoyed Starts it Starts to fill it anyway yeah exactly and, it's, and i hope it can be a process um we need to do if it's agreeable to you i'd love to do a part two because i've got a whole bunch of questions about so this is just um for, so for those listening this is just one dimension of your practice your work your experience um you're heavily involved in the uh sports safe sports safety. safety and uh, uh, amongst other things um 
I'd love to get into that separately. I think we need to do it in two parts because I think we've just, I think it's been around 50 minutes or so we've been talking about betting, which is important, but I don't want it to be the only thing because there's- Delighted, there's delighted, a, de delighted. The one thing I like doing is talking about the things I'm interested in. You're right, we haven't spoken about sports ground safety um, and the evolution of the body that's responsible for that. Um, I'd love to because in amongst the things that I've been lucky enough to do in public and quasi-public life, that's the thing that I value most because every every Saturday, all those people go to football matches and it's very important they come home safe. And the body that I was lucky enough to be the non-executive chairman of plays such a major role in that. Um, and I think that um, I, I was lucky enough to, to be involved with that body. All the hard work and expertise was done by the brilliant inspectorate um, um, and the level of achievement and commitment that that body organises is something, well, frankly, you'll have to have parts two, three, and four because <laughs> my pride in them and what was achieved there um, is is just just something else. Thank you so much. Let's do it then. Let's book, we'll book in. Delighted. We'll, finish, we'll Delighted. wrap this up and then we'll, let's book in the next one. So Good. Do Thank you very part much. Two. Sadly, that's all we have time for for this show, but I hope you enjoyed it. And remember, for all the latest legal issues and developments, from the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com, follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Instagram, Twitter, pretty much every, most platforms you can think of. You know, become a subscriber to Law in Sport, ideally become a plus member, support what we do. And if you do enjoy it, please do tell people. Other than that, thank you so much for tuning in and I hope you have a wonderful day. Mm -hmm.